me read from 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and starting at verse 7. 1 John is not really a letter. It's more like a little sermon. And this is what the apostle John says. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Amen. I want to talk to you today about our controlling sense of identity and the love of God. We've been in a series called Apprenticing. We're asking the question, what can we learn about following Jesus from some of the earliest followers of Jesus? And last week, uh, Gary did a kind of broad brush character study, really, on the Apostle John. John is a really interesting guy for a character study because in John's journey of following Jesus, there were a number of episodes where his insecurities and his fears rose to the surface and generated uh, often quite ugly behavior. Gary gave us a few examples last week, but on one occasion, John asks Jesus quite explicitly for the place of highest honor in his kingdom. John was the disciple who wanted to be first. On another occasion, John is heard arguing with the other disciples about which of them is the greatest. John was the disciple who needed recognition. And on another occasion, John deliberately steps in and stops a group of people who are ministering in Jesus' name because they weren't part of his group. John was the disciple who was with the in crowd. And there are more episodes like this. I mean, on one occasion, John tried to impress Jesus and all of his mates by offering to kill people in a Samaritan village. John was the disciple who had something to prove. He was trying to become someone. And I find it interesting that in John chapter 2, the Gospel of John, he makes this little comment at the beginning of his story when he says that Jesus didn't need a testimony about any man because he already knew what was in every man. And I find it reassuring to know that John is telling us, actually, Jesus knew all of this was in me. Jesus knew that I was just a bundle of insecurity and fear, and I had something to prove. I was trying to be someone. I was trying to become someone, and he knew all of that and yet he loved me. Isn't it reassuring to know? I don't know if, if you sometimes feel like a bundle of insecurity and, and, and different uh, fears 
But isn't it reassuring that, that Jesus saw everything that was in John and he trusted him with ministry. He trusted him with leadership within the group. He trusted him with authority and he loved him. He was a friend, even a best friend to him. And yet, as Gary explained last week, as we track John's journey, what we discover is that he underwent quite a remarkable transformation from the disciple who needed to be first, who wanted to be recognized, who was with the in crowd, the disciple who had something to prove, the disciple who was trying to become someone. He underwent this transformation to the point where John hides himself in the text as the disciple who Jesus loved. Something happened in his controlling sense of identity that changed him. And not only did it change him on the inside, but it also began to kind of turn his life outwards towards others as well. Because John's journey stopped being all about him and he became the apostle of love, constantly preaching this same message. Let us, let us turn our lives outwards towards each other and love each other. What a remarkable transformation in a person. Let me ask you a question. What would it look like what would it feel like if some of the painful and persistent insecurities in your life were replaced with a calm, anchoring assurance of Jesus' love? It would be a relief, wouldn't it? It would bring freedom to you. And I reckon it would also increasingly turn your life outwards towards others because insecurity tends to make everything about us. And when insecurities that are persistent or painful are replaced by a calm, anchoring sense of Jesus' love, it turns our life outward towards others. That's the transformation that we saw in the Apostle John. And towards the end, actually, of First John in chapter 4, verse 18, he, he says this. He says, perfect love Agape love, the love of God, casts out fear. It's like he, he's, he's talking about his own experience and his own life. He's saying, I've lived this. I lived with insecurities and fears, but the love of God has actually come into my life and replaced those and turned my life outwards. What a transformation. What would it look like and feel like in your own life? The question I, I want to maybe uh, dig into a little bit this morning is how did that actually happen? How did that transformation come about? And the answer in, in uh, the passage that we've just read in 1 John is quite emphatic. The transformation in John's character and his controlling sense of identity didn't come about because Jesus was a kind of nice guy, an accepting guy, a tolerant guy. It, it didn't come across, it sort of happened in his life through warm, fuzzy feelings. It, it happened because he saw and he witnessed and he understood something at the cross. John is, is clear about that in 1 John. That something I saw, something I witnessed, and something I understood. He was the last disciple there as Jesus gave up his life on the cross. He said, something that I saw, witnessed, and understood has radically changed my controlling sense of identity. It has taken my insecurities and my fears that are painful and persistent. It has cast them out and replaced them with a calm and anchoring uh, reassurance of the love of God. That's how it happened. And I would like to unpack for you a little bit today three things 
in this passage in 1 John that John saw and understood and witnessed at the cross that have made all the difference, okay? So let's have a look. The first thing that he understood and he witnessed at the cross was something of divine initiative. Divine initiative. In 1 John 4, 9 that we've just read, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what he's saying is that I understood something as I looked up at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I understood that I was witnessing a kind of love that is not responsive or reactive to anything in me. You know, almost every kind of love or approval or affirmation that we receive in this life, no matter how pure, um, is always tainted by a little bit of responsiveness or reactivity. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's in response to something that we are doing or a way that we're behaving or something that we're able to achieve, something that we're becoming. And in return, we receive a little bit of, of love or affirmation or approval. But the love of God on the cross is not like that. John is saying, Orangefield, before you knew God, God knew you. And before you could search for God, God was searching for you. And before you loved God, God loved you. What a message that would be for our young people this week. The love of God goes before. If you miss this, you actually miss what it means to be a Christian. This is the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of Christ against all other religious systems and deities that say you can do this and, and try at this to find God. But Christianity doesn't say that um, fundamentally we have to find God. It says fundamentally God found you. It kind of cuts against every societal grain and every drop of water that we sort of swim in, I think, when we look around us and, and we, we kind of crave uh, attention or approval or affirmation from other people who seem to be impressive, who seem to have it together, who seem to be fulfilling their destiny, and we're struggling with this kind of bundle of insecurities and, and fears that we have. Tyler Statton talked about it, um, this comparison kind of culture. He said, everyone else around me is a scale that I am weighed on. Everyone else is a mirror who must tell me who I am, and everyone else is a person who I'm competing against or a vote of approval that I'm competing for. Do you want to see some people who are fulfilling their destiny? Let, let's start with Phil McCann. Phil McCann is here on the BBC News reporting on fuel shortages. There is no doubt that Phil McCann was born for this moment, right? There is a guy fulfilling his destiny. Phil McCann was born to report on fuel shortages, right? Who else is there? Well, um, Paige Turner, the uh, American author, her books have sold more than a million copies worldwide. Paige Turner was born to write and sell books. She is fulfilling her destiny. PC Rob Banks. From the Avon and Somerset Police. I wonder when he was born and his parents named him Rob Banks. What they hoped he would grow up to become, right? Did they have any idea that he would become a police officer? PC Rob Banks. That guy is fulfilling his destiny. Um, what about Andrew Drinkwater from the Water Research Center on BBC News? Or even uh, Sarah Blizzard? Um, 
giving us the latest weather forecast. Here's a collection of people who are fulfilling their destiny, right? They were born to do this. I don't imagine they wake up in the morning and, and wrestle with insecurities and fears about approval and about affirmation because they, they were born to do this. I mean, has anyone, does anyone recognize this guy? If you don't recognize this guy and you haven't seen this before, this is the first thing you need to do when you go home, okay? You need to get on YouTube. This is a gentleman called Guy Coma. Guy Coma is a Senegalese bloke living in London who showed up at the BBC studios to interview for a caretaker's job. As he came to the reception, his name was confused with somebody else's. And before he knew it, he was sitting on the sofa on the 10 o'clock news on live TV being pitched as a music industry expert, right? And he was asked a question about the future of the music industry. And you can literally see the moment when the penny drops, and he thinks, this isn't a job interview, is it? This isn't about becoming a caretaker. I think I might be required to pass a comment on the future of the music industry. You can watch the moment when the penny drops, and then a decision is required, because he's got two options. He can come clean, or he can carry on trucking straight down the middle of the road and pretend that he is an expert in the music industry. And of course, he takes option number two and attempts to pass expert comment live on the BBC 10 o'clock news. Guy Coma was probably a guy um, racked with insecurity, <laughs> racked with fear, because there had been some sort of terrible mistake. And you know the truth is that a lot of the time in life, I actually feel, I, I, I feel a little bit like this guy. My, my experience in life, in, in work, at home, in ministry, in different uh, environments that I find myself in resonates a little bit with Guy Coma, or maybe a bit like this um, picture here. I, do you want to know something terrifying? I showed this to some of our team in work, and I would say the average age of our team in work is about 26. Do you know what the first question was? Who's the big yellow bird? <laughs> Horrendous. Um, everybody else, well-trained, well-uniformed, in the right place at the right time, doing what they were born to do, fulfilling their destiny, Nicely packaged, having it all together, and there's me in the middle, um, feeling like any moment now I'm going to be found out. Any moment now my insecurities and my fears are going to come to the surface and people are going to discover that I'm not really worthy of their approval and their affirmation and their love after all. And John witnessed and understood something at the cross that changed him utterly. And what he understood was that the love of God revealed in Jesus is entirely independent of anything you could ever achieve, anything you could ever do for him in return, or any portfolio of impressive things that you could put together to offer him. His love is not responsive, not reactive in the way that other forms of love are that we experience. His love simply is. It's a difficult thing to really get your head around. 
his unrestrained and immeasurable affection for you. But I think by the Spirit, as we look at the cross of Jesus, we can understand and we can witness something of it and it can change us. The second thing that he uh, notices or, or understands at the cross is in 1 John 4 and verse 9. He said, not only did, did God love us, but he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And I think sometimes with the cross, it's easy often as a follower of Jesus to reach a point where you become so overly familiar that you actually forget sometimes to unpack all of the depth of meaning in the cross, you know. And, and sometimes you hear Christians say often that Jesus died for us because he loves us. Jesus died for us because he loves us. But it's funny because if I was walking down the lagging towpath on a lovely summer's evening, the like of which we haven't seen for a very, very long time, and I was walking with Naomi, and, and as we were walking along, I just felt particularly romantic, and I said to Naomi, Naomi, I, I love you so much. I really love you so much. In fact, I, I, I love you so much, I'm going to throw myself in the lagging. And I throw myself into the lagging, and the current's really strong, and I drown in the lag and lose my life, would anybody look at that and say, what an extraordinary act of love? No. They would say, what an extraordinary act of stupidity, right? But what if Naomi was in the water and at the point of drowning and I threw myself into the lagoon, and in the process of dragging her ashore, I lost my life? People would look at that and say, that's an extraordinary act of love. And John says, when I look at the cross and I witness and understand something there, I see that what God was doing was he was providing Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, the problem with atonement and atoning is that we don't really use that language every day. We don't really use it in conversation. But the term atonement, although it's kind of theologically quite rich and deep, it just means a kind of um, the healing or restoration of a relationship through the payment or covering of a debt. Now, where does that debt come from? Well, if you've ever seen the HBO series Chernobyl, I think it's amazing. Towards the end of that series, one of the scientists who's presenting a case before the court about what happened at Chernobyl says something very profound. He says, every lie that has ever been told incurs a debt to the truth. It incurs a debt. And John says in, in his writing, do you know, if we pretend that we're flawless, that we're perfect, that we've never done anything wrong, we're, we've totally deluded ourselves. Because all, all of us are, are living with this fundamental problem of a life that's kind of in some ways turned in upon itself, motivated by, by, by selfishness and, and selfish ambition. And I think John is trying to help us understand that every time we, we do something wrong, it's almost like we, we vandalize something of God's good creation. It's like we impinge upon the dignity or the value or the worth of another human being, which is of infinite value. And the reality is that whenever something of value is lost, whenever something of value is vandalized or ruined, some kind of restitutionary payment is the only appropriate acknowledgement of the worth if you, if somebody broke into your house at night and really seriously harmed or killed somebody in your family who you love dearly, 
And that case came to court, and the judge said to um, this person who had broken into your house, you know, you, you did something absolutely reprehensible, and something of immense and infinite value has been lost and taken away. But I'm really forgiving, so I'm, I'm just going to let you go. Nobody would look at that and say, that is love. Because love demands an appropriate acknowledgement of the immense value of what has been lost. And so we find ourselves in this position where even in the smallest of ways, whenever we impinge upon the, the, the goodness of God's creation and the dignity and the worth and the value of other people, when we fail, we run up a debt that we could never pay. It's like that um, song, Living Hope, that there's a chasm between us that couldn't be crossed. And I suppose the question is, what is God going to do about it? How is God going to, to deal with it? And the sacrificial system of the Old Testament really was teaching people two things. As they came to present an animal in their place for the, the, the wrong that they were living with, it was teaching them two things. Number one, that sin really matters because it affects this good world that we live in. It affects the dignity and the worth and the value of people who we live around. It really matters. And secondly, God was teaching them, it's not your head on the guillotine. Actually, I am going to provide for you in this instance. I am, I am going to take the hit myself and bring about a healing and a restoration of this relationship. The story of Noah, God looks down at this mess and all of this sin and failure and brokenness and violence. And in the conclusion of the story, he says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky to remind you that I am promising to heal and to restore this. And, and the rainbow in the sky looks a little bit like a crossbow. I think that's probably what they would have been seeing in it. And what direction is it pointing? The crossbow that God places in the sky is pointing back towards him. He's saying, this is a total mess, but in order to redeem and restore and heal it, I'm going to cover this. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to take the hit. The story of Moses, there's a mess. There's, there's failure. There, there, there are, there's worth and dignity that's being lost. And God says to Moses, I, I, I want, I'm going to stand between you and the mountain, and I want you to take your stick, and I want you to strike the mountain, and I'm going to bring healing and restoration out of that. In other words, God says, let me take the hit. And in the prophetic tradition, we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah begins to give us a little bit more clarity on this. He says, God is going to send his servant who is going to absorb the cost of all of this damage. And on the cross, John witnesses something and understands something about what God is doing to cover for us, where his grace and his love meet with perfect justice forever. You know, the vast majority of guests who I uh, sit around a table with on an alpha, very often outside the church and even sometimes inside the church, people still deep, deep down either believe or very strongly suspect that what we want from them is to stop doing certain things and to start doing other things. They think that at the bleeding heart of Christianity, there is a message that says, do this and don't do that. And some Christians even live their whole life trying desperately to put that into practice, trying to do the do's, trying to don't the don'ts, and getting absolutely exhausted because they're still doing the don'ts and they can't seem to don't the do's. And it just, you reach a point where you almost give up and you feel like maybe this is just it. Maybe this is the Christian life. 
But John looked up at the cross and he, he witnessed and understood that actually the, beating, the kind of bleeding heart of Christian faith is that not that you would do all the do's and don't all the don'ts and try really hard and put together a record of achievement. But the bleeding heart of Christianity is that God will provide a record of achievement for you that is perfect, complete, untouchable, and eternal. And in return, he asks you to trust him and to rest in that provision. Bob Goff said, we keep offering God all of our successes and all he ever wanted in the first place was our heart. The final thing that John witnesses and understands at the cross that changes his controlling sense of identity is that we have been adopted as children of God. 1 John 3, 1, he says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God and that is what we are. You see, it goes beyond forgiveness because forgiveness, at the end of the day, forgiveness says, okay, you can go. But adoption as a child says, you can come, you can come. You can come into my presence without fear, without insecurity, because I have provided for you, I've covered for you, and actually my, my face of favor and blessing and delight is forever directed towards you. You're my child. I have a friend called Ben. He's Canadian, and he grew up with two granddads in his life, which was lucky, I guess. Uh, one granddad was British, Papa Tom, and the other granddad was Egyptian, Papa Nazim. And Papa Tom was British, a little bit allergic to any public displays of affection, not very forthcoming with words of affirmation. Ben said one time he actually went in for a hug with Papa Tom, and the old guy like recoiled back and like held out his hand for a handshake. Papa Nazim, on the other hand, Egyptian completely different story. Always extravagant in his displays of affection and affirmation and love. In fact, Ben said that Papa Nazim used to go through the same routine every single time he would come to visit him. So he would come in the door and Papa Nazim would, would grab him and hug him. And then he would pull back and he would kiss him on the cheeks. And then when he kissed him on the cheeks, he would hold him again and he would hold him for like such a long time that it started to become really uncomfortable. And then he would pull back again and he would hold him by both sides of the face and he would just explode in this Egyptian affirmation. Ben, my precious boy, I love you so much, Ben. I'm so proud of you, Ben. I really, really love you, Ben. You're my precious. You're such a good boy. You're such a good boy, Ben. I'm so proud of you. And after years and years and years of this happening, Ben grew to absolutely love it, right? He couldn't wait to get round to see Papa Nazim and get the treatment. Papa Nazim, every time, would sort of look him straight in the eye to the point where he was staring into his soul, you know, Ben, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you, Ben. You're my precious boy, such a good boy. When Papa Nazim died and Ben was at his funeral, he said there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. And every single person genuinely believed that Papa Nazim loved them more than anybody else. 
And he also made a decision. He thought, when I have my own kids, or I've even got some nieces and nephews now, and no matter how much they hate it, no matter how uncomfortable they are, and no matter how much they struggle against it, I'm going to give them a little taste of the Papa Nazim treatment. And he still does. But then as he sat and, and reflected a little bit more, he had this experience of the Spirit whispering in his ear, and he felt that God was saying to him, Ben, you might struggle with this emotionally. You might not always feel it. You might struggle with this in your imagination. You might not always picture it. But just because you struggle with it emotionally and you don't always picture it in your imagination doesn't make it any less true. The disposition of the Father and the demeanor of the Father, the face of the Father towards you, Ben, is just like Papa Nazim. He really loves you, Ben. And I want to tell you this morning that the disposition and the demeanor of the Father towards you is a little bit like Papa Nazim. You might struggle with that emotionally. You might not picture that in your imagination. You might not have experienced that a whole lot in the world around you. But just because you wrestle and struggle with those things doesn't make it any less true. He really loves you. And the cross is a demonstration of just how deep that love is and just how much he means it. You might be the disciple who feels like she's failing as a mom. You might be the disciple who feels like no matter what you do, you just don't quite measure up. You might be the disciple who hasn't read their Bible in months. You might be the disciple who feels like they've something to prove or is really impressed by everybody else. You might be the disciple who wants to be successful as a musician, as a lawyer, as a footballer, as a dad. You might be the disciple who never gets celebrated or never really gets recognized. You might be the disciple who doesn't do enough. You might be the disciple who gave up. I felt really led this morning to encourage you that at the cross you can witness and understand that you are the disciple who Jesus loves. And that kind of love can begin to replace even the deepest, most persistent, and most painful of our insecurities. It can completely change our whole controlling sense of identity. This isn't some kind of gospel that you long for. It's not some kind of gospel you desperately hope for. It's not some kind of gospel you really need, Orangefield. It's the gospel that you have. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come and join me. And as they find the right instrument, why don't we stand? I imagine they'll probably ask you to do that anyway. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. Yeah, Father, I've, I've finished speaking this morning, but um, I want to pray as we stand together and... Um, respond to your word, reflect on your word. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us now. And I want to I pray for anybody in the, in the room who, um, you know, hears that story about Papa Nazim and his extravagant love and, and we maybe, maybe just doesn't really picture you like that very easily. I want to pray that even by your Holy Spirit this morning, we might catch a little glimpse 
of your demeanor and your disposition towards us. God, we can't, we can't give away what we don't have ourselves. I pray for everybody who's leading a jam this week as they want to give away this message of your love and carry the, the presence of your love within them. I pray you would fill them up with that again this morning. And I'm also praying for all of us that carry around a, a bundle of different insecurities that sort of affect our controlling sense of who we are. And I pray that, uh, God, as we witness the cross, as we understand the cross, that even today, some of those insecurities, some of those fears would be replaced by the calm and anchoring assurance of your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.